0: Terrible Outdoorsman Podcast. We have a very special edition coming at you. Um, very special guest. We'll do a quick round table before we get into it. So you have Ryan Callen, your host.
1: Yo, 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 what up for show? Bob Collan here.
2: Yeah. Who else we got on the line?
0: Uh Captain. Captain
1: JG checking in from Midland.
2: Got Dan Williams here. Jimmy dolmage
0: we got the whole crew here and then uh our special guest is someone um you know you guys might have seen if you watch a little show called Michigan Out of Doors. He's been on there a few times. Um Chad Stewart with the Michigan DNR. Chad, how are you doing today?
3: I'm doing great, man. How about you?
0: Great. Thanks for coming on. We uh we appreciate it. we've been I know we've been working on this for a couple of months to get this set up, but I uh I know you're a busy man this time of year, so I, I, I know we all appreciate the heck out of you coming on.
3: Yeah, I appreciate you bearing with me with that stuff. So I'm glad we got
0: it scheduled. Yeah, it's you know, I knew this this topic and 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 what your field is and this time of year, um, it's going to be hard to schedule you. So I'm the fact that we got you on November third is, uh, is still a surprise to me. So yeah, um, so um, so Chad, I just kind of wanted to kick it off. Um, the, the idea of this episode is kind of to break down um, CWD or chronic wasting disease. And I know that's one of your areas of expertise. That's why you've, I've seen you on TV a few times. But I kind of wanted to uh, just first go into just kind of you. Um, give a, if, if you kind of want to give a background of you, um, what your official title is, and go through that.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, my official title its man, it's a long one. It's, uh, <laughs> my official title is Deer, Elk, and Moose Management Specialist for the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, which uh, is a mouthful, but I got to admit it's kind of cool and I'm pretty happy to have that, uh, yeah. <laughs> that title. I feel really fortunate. Uh, been with the agency for about eight years now. Uh, prior to that uh, was the deer biologist in Indiana, uh, also for about eight years. So uh, last 16 years, just you know, overseeing management of white-tailed deer in the Midwest. Uh, before that, I was a wildlife biologist uh, with uh, an organization like a—I don't know what they're called—like a, a group called uh, the, the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute. Uh, most people have probably heard of the Smithsonian. Uh, thinking of like the DC museums, they actually have a, a facility in Northern Virginia where they really it's sort of closed off to the public, and it's, the intent is to you know breed like these rare and captive endangered species but in doing so and like closing it off to the public and sort of making like a big area they've enclosed a lot of wildlife and a lot of forests and fields in in virginia so i got to do a lot of deer research in that area too which was really cool right at the foothills of the shenandoah uh, national park and the shenandoah mountains Uh, also able to do some international work uh, with some wildlife research too which was Really fortunate, and then uh, you know, from an educational standpoint, I've got degrees from uh, Penn State University and University of Illinois. So a couple other Big Ten universities, and then now living in uh, Big Ten country here in Michigan.
2: Go Blue! Go Blue! <laughs> All
0: right. So, so who do you Go root for blue. then? Are you a Michigan fan or?
3: Oh no, you know. So I grew up in Pennsylvania. I'm a oh, Pennsylvania awesome. guy. So yeah. uh, I and. Uh, I feel I feel comfortable saying that to you guys since uh, Michigan just absolutely drub Penn State football. So uh, <laughs> hey, there's it's, no, not, no it's not always feelings. like that, though. <laughs> oh, It's been like that for a while. But, uh, yeah, I uh, pretty much diehard Penn State football, Penn State uh, basketball. Uh, when Illinois is good, I kind of bandwagon onto them for basketball. But uh, unfortunately, this year they're good for football. So I, maybe I, I should jump on their bandwagon a little bit. But yeah. Um, Yeah, focus on those two teams nice so how did you
0: get into the this is this something that you kind of always wanted to do or Um, did you you think of this like as a kid like this did you think that this is what you're going to do when you grew up because it's kind of my dream uh, job i'm not gonna lie
3: yeah no i don't know if i necessarily thought of this as a kid as like a job but um you know like listen like I, i grew up in a hunting household like i in pennsylvania growing up like you couldn't hunt like at an early age, like the minimum age for deer hunting was 12. But as soon as I turned 12, I was deer hunting with like, with my dad, my grandfather, you know, his friends, um, you know, loved deer hunting my whole life. Um, never thought about necessarily being a deer biologist. Honestly, never thought I'd be smart enough to be a deer biologist. And sometimes (laughs) I still wonder that if I'm being honest. Um, but anyway, you know, you start going into college and you start deciding on like a major you know, the major that stuck out to me at going into Penn State was like this wildlife and fishery science. And I'm like, man, that sounds really kind of cool. You know, you yeah. get to go do like wildlife fisheries kind of research. And that sounds like a really cool job. So I started down that path, started picking up some like what they call technician positions or, you know, just sort of seasonal jobs. Um, and they were honestly not deer related. Like my first one was with migratory songbirds, because, you know, you're just trying to get your foot in the field and, and yeah. do some things. Um, you know, going into that, the uh, the songbirds migrated and went away, and I was left without a job. So, Penn State had a deer research facility, uh, and I just called and said, hey, I got a couple extra weeks here before school starts, and I'm just kind of hanging out. I would love to volunteer, and the guy that was running it was really great, and he said, I'd love to have you, and maybe we can even find a couple bucks to throw your way. So, dude, that was like the perfect storm for me. Like I get to go and, and get some experience handling deer, just sort of raising deer and and see some of the research they do inside this fence facility. And, uh, I carried that job with me throughout my entire uh, senior year in college, uh, which led me to get another position as a technician. And that sort of just kind of kept snowballing into deer positions until I found myself pigeonholed into being a deer biologist and, I'm not complaining, but it didn't start out that way. But, you know, I'm pretty excited with where it ended up. Yeah. Well, that's awesome.
0: So how long have you been with the Michigan DNR?
3: Uh, it'll be eight years in December. Okay. Yeah. Well, wow.
0: I know as a kid, that was always my dream job to work for the DNR. I used to think that I wanted to be a CO, but then, like, you don't get the hunt opening day or anything like that because you've got to be policing the idiots out in the woods so i changed my tune
3: there's some truth to that you know i I can't tell you that i've hunted one opening day in you know michigan at this time and it's it's not going to happen again so that's why i i spent a lot of time in the archery woods uh just because that's when i get my hunting in
0: that was my next question was are you do you still hunt so you, you focused on on bow then
3: yeah. I spend most of my time, uh, bow hunting, uh, you know, been out a handful of times, uh, you know, this season so far, Um uh, still looking for that first deer, honestly. But, uh, yeah, I spend most of my time doing that because honestly it's, uh, you know, again, this is something I didn't think through very well. And, and maybe <laughs> I don't know if I can provide any guidance to, yeah. to anybody that wants to be a future deer yeah. biologist. You know, there's not a lot of time to deer hunt during deer season because you're, you're, you're hung up with, you know, other things, you know, like, Guys wanting to do podcasts podcast during the middle of the rut at 6 p.m. So. <laughs> Shots uh, fired. What a bunch of idiots.
0: We, sh- we should be in a tree yeah. set right now, I'm not sitting here doing a podcast. Yeah, we're complaining about traffic here. You <laughs> well,
2: know, so. played, uh, well played, sir. Well played.
1: Ryan got his deer and he's like, yeah, I think we'll just screw up everyone else's hunting and we'll do this right now. <laughs> hey,
0: this was planned before I shot my deer. Yeah, I shot I a deer a couple of days ago, and yeah, everybody's all sad face
3: about it. Uh, I, know
0: I know Bob was because he's stuck down in Kentucky doing some army training, so he he can't hunt the rut, so he's really bumming. Yeah,
2: yeah. Ryan's first yeah. thing. I uh, I just dropped my deer off at the taxidermist. It's like, oh yeah, I feel really <laughs> bad for you, man. You know.
1: <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. What were we saying, Bob?
4: <laughs> I, i'm getting used to it i'm getting used to uh just getting uh you know hosed here in kentucky uh, every day when i'm driving around on base and stuff like that there are some monster bucks around this place and they're just, they're just taunting me all of them. so yeah
0: yeah it's a thing well you'll be back just in time for the rut at least you guys didn't get married like right in the middle of the rut like like me I, I did yeah, too.
4: yeah who does that i know <laughs> where's the anniversary I, the I
0: just read an article the other day too i think it was like field and stream or maybe it was meat eater and they said that november 7th is the best day to hunt the rut of like of all days of averages for like the most bucks are killed on november 7th <laughs> and sure shit i got married on november 7th <laughs> wow genius nice going yeah whatever so all right so so let's get into it chad so Again, the, the main thing we want to talk about is C, CWD, chronic wasting disease. So, I guess break that down. Explain to our listeners what the hell CWD even is and means.
3: Yeah, um, man. What, so CWD. I'm gonna just to warn you guys, it's a super depressing topic. So just to sort of <laughs> set the stage for what you're about to hear. Um, so CWD is you know the acronym for chronic wasting disease. Uh, chronic wasting disease is a deer specific disease, you know, as far as we know right now that affects the central nervous system of basically members of the deer family. So it's been found in white tailed deer, it's been found in mule deer, elk, moose. Um, you know, I'm sure there's probably a couple other species that it has been found in sort of, you know, experimentally, but from a North American standpoint, like, listen, those are the four big ones, right? Um, and, and what it is, it's uh, it's it's not caused by something you would normally think of causing diseases. So when most people think of diseases, they're thinking of one of two things. They're thinking of a bacteria or they're thinking of a virus, right? And this is not caused by either one of those things. This is called, caused by a, a prion and specifically a misfolded prion. So... For those of you who don't know, a prion is basically a protein that exists in your body. Like every one of us has it. You know, Ryan's got it. Bob's got it. I've got it. We all have prions in our body, but they take a, a distinct shape and, and function. And what happens was when, when a deer contracts CWD, that shape, you know, starts to, you know, it, it misfolds and then they contract that. And then that shape serves as like a template for the the normally functioning prions in their body and it starts to almost create like a cookie cutter effect like all those prions start to misshape like it and then they just don't do anything it causes essentially atrophy in your central nervous system so uh it you know it's it's a part CWD is part of a family of diseases called transmissible spongiform encephalopathies so to break that down transmissible means able to be passed from one animal or one individual to another individual. Spongiform means sort of like looking like a sponge, you know, so like the form of a sponge and everybody thinks of a sponge is, you know, this, this glob that has holes in it. And then enceph- encephalopathy um, is basically the deterioration of your brain. So it's basically a contagious disease that can be spread to your brain and central nervous system and causes atrophy that makes it look like a sponge. So what it does is this disease bores these sort of microscopic holes in your brain of the deer. And, you know, if you get enough of those built up over time and research has shown, it usually takes a year and a half to two years on average. Some might be a little bit less and might be a little bit more. Um, they'll start to show symptoms of it. So the animal basically stops functioning. So uh, it starts wasting away. And that's where the the CWD moniker comes in. Chronic meaning long-term wasting disease, basically meaning that the animal will eventually lose weight and just sort of fade away because it just starts getting this blank stare because its brain's not working anymore. Uh, It starts salivating and then it starts getting really, really emaciated. And once it starts looking like that, it it it's not not far from death
0: it sounds terrible um i'm uber
3: depressed right now (laughs) told you yeah it's it's an awful disease that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy and uh you know if you're if you're passionate about deer it's not something that you want to see like even an individual animal go through let alone go through like a population gotcha.
5: so is cwd the um <clears throat> the virus that you see uh, occasionally videos on like say social media where basically there's a zombie or it's like a zombie looking deer like not looking deer but acting deer where it's not acting normal like it's behaving strange um is would that be like would those videos like show like a cwd deer
3: yeah it's it's possible and, and some of them undoubtedly are um you know, the, the one thing that is is challenging with chronic wasting disease is that there are several things that are out there that can kind of mimic the, the end game symptoms of it. Uh, so a lot of times people will see a, a deer and a lot of times it's a buck, honestly, um, usually right after the rut. Sometimes you see them in December, maybe even January, and they've just been fighting so much, right? And you get these like puncture wounds in their head and then you get bacteria in there and it causes – what's called an abscess, which is just this sort of like funky infection, but it kind of leaches into their brain and, and causes the exact same response or at least outward symptoms of chronic wasting disease. Uh, so the deer just kind of looks like a zombie. It might start circling around a little bit, um, just sort of unaware that there's people or danger nearby. Uh, so it looks like it's, you know, just completely unresponsive or, or nearly unresponsive you get some of that too. So the only way to really be certain is to, to do what really like a post-mortem test. Uh, and, and really the the gold standard right now is to pull out um, what's called the retropharyngeal lymph nodes, which is a lymph node that sort of sits right at the sort of joint between your, your neck and their head um, right behind their, like their voice box, their larynx and stuff. Um, you pull those out, You run them through a a, a test or a series of tests and, uh, you know, it's a a stain that comes up and if it stains, it comes out positive. So the other other piece that's out there uh, is hemorrhagic disease, and and that's probably more common to see, honestly. Um, It's a little bit different. It can still cause neurological symptoms in deer or sort of a lack of fear in deer, but the thing with hemorrhagic disease is it goes through deer very quickly, and that's a virus, so you, you normally don't see the the body condition deteriorating with hemorrhagic disease, as you do with chronic wasting disease, where that's more of a long term, slower burn, and uh, that that's what impacts their their physical condition. So they look visibly sick. Where you see you're really ribby. You see the hip bones and the hip joints popping out. Um, a lot of times their head is, is down or their ears are lowered. Um, and, and sometimes you'll get a, like this big, massive amount of drool coming out of their mouth, too. So all of those things or any combination of which if you see two of those symptoms, usually you want to get it tested for chronic wasting disease just because, you know, it, it, it could be that. It could be something else, but, you know, it's, a, it's at least symptomatic for chronic wasting disease.
0: So is that EHD? Is that what you were talking about? The other one?
3: EHD is the one that kind of goes, so that's transmitted by like a a biting midge. So that's actually a virus. Um, And that usually occurs, uh, it usually occurs in years where you have a lot of drought in the summer and it, uh, it's very spotty in how it, how it kind of goes through. So, you know, some, some deer, you know, within a, you know, square mile or two square mile section can get impacted with it. They can contract the virus. It's not always fatal. Uh, a lot of a lot of the deer that contract it do die, but it, you know, some deer do recover from it. But you can go, you know, a couple miles down the road, and like literally no deer has, have have uh, hemorrhagic disease. So it's really unique, and it's really tied to the the distribution of like that that noceum, that biting midge that transmits the virus. So the EHD
0: isn't spread from deer to deer. It's just from it. Correct. Okay.
3: Correct. Yeah. So, so that, and that's, that's a, that's an important difference. So CWD can be spread from deer to deer both directly and indirectly because these prions, like I said before, they're proteins. uh, So they're not a living organism. Like they don't die. You can't kill a protein because it's not alive to kill. And what they found is that that, prion can be shed in like the mucus and the urine and the feces and once that biological material starts to degrade the prion remains in the environment attaches to the soil can actually be taken up into some of the plant tissue and remain infectious so one deer potentially can infect another deer without ever coming into contact with it and that's the sort of really insidious you know scary part of cwd like even if you were to go through heavily infected cwd area and kill all the deer you've got that environmental contamination piece so deer start coming back into it they could still contract the disease but you're right hemorrhagic disease can only be transmitted from the midge to the deer so what happens is when you get like a really hard frost kill those midges you're not going to see hemorrhagic disease happen anymore because it shuts that cycle right off and for hemorrhagic disease the animals that survive tend to have some sort of immunity built up that can be passed on to fawns. So it's extremely rare to ever see hemorrhagic disease hit the exact same area, like two years in a row hmm. where chronic wasting disease, is just a continual cycle over and over and over and just continues to build at build at like a, like a glacial pace.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. Man. It's- crazy what our deer herd goes through so before we get too deep into cwd so one of the other ones that i know has been around for a long time is tuberculosis so i know that was a big deal when i was a young kid growing up you don't really hear about it as much anymore besides the tb zone um where's like what's the status of the state for tb right now like
3: yeah um so we still have tb so there's three diseases that we've talked about um EHD, CWD, and and TB. Uh, EHD is transmitted by a virus. Uh, CWD is transmitted through, you know, misfolded or, you know, misshaped and prions, and and TB is a bacterial disease. Um, We've had TB consistently in the state, in the northeastern part of the state, since about, I think it's 1994. Uh, So we're coming up on easily 30 years, and the first case of TB was, I think, found actually in the late 70s. It just wasn't, you know, either followed up with or found at a wide scale, you know, um, nature, but we still have TB. We still do annual testing for TB. We actually have a, what's called a memorandum of understanding with, uh, United States department of agriculture, where we have to test so many deer out of that area for TB every year. And if, if we don't, you know, our state runs the risk of losing, uh, you know, or, or getting downgraded in our TB status, which, you know, doesn't really affect deer hunting, but it absolutely affects the cattle industry. And you think of how many millions of dollars we have in our state's cattle industry, uh, if not tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, it's, it's, it's astronomical. Um, you know, that's something we can't afford to lose is like downgraded status with our TB. But, um, we have two management units with uh, TB in the Northeast. Uh, we, we have DMU 452, which is really our core area. And it really sort of encompasses that uh, that four-county area, or the, the four the four counties meet of uh, Alpena, Alcona, Montmorency, and Oscoda. So all four of those counties sort of meet at one point, and that's sort of a centralized point where our, our most – Populous TB, you know, infection is 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 located. Uh, to put it in perspective, we are annually finding it at about one and a half to two percent of our deer herd tested in that core area. It doesn't sound like much, but at the same time, it's a it's a number high enough where we can't seem to get rid of it at that level. Yeah, you know, the outside of that is 487, which is a six county area. Um, it's all those four counties that I just mentioned, or the remainder of those four counties plus Isle and, uh, Iosco County. And we're finding it there at, you know, anywhere from a 10th of a percent, to maybe up to three tenths of a percent. So much more rare, but still finding it fairly frequently, at least in the, the outskirts of those counties. Um, and that's, that's sort of the good news with TB is that in 30 years, you know the the line that we drew around tb hasn't really changed a whole lot so it's been we've been able to keep it confined to that area the bad news is um is that it's still persistent still present and uh it's still a, a threat to i guess mostly our cattle herd up there just being in our in our deer herd
0: yeah hmm i remember as a kid like you get the rule book and Wait, you, flip, uh, you flip through the pages and it's got the pictures of the the lungs and the the inside the yeah. cage and stuff and it used to freak me out as a kid every time i shot a deer like i'm checking it and down here in southeast southeast michigan and i mean luckily i never never saw one but i remember as a kid it always kind of freaked me out hey, i got a see. question for you chad yeah bob
4: can you all hear me okay um So is TB like 100% fatal to deer? Like if deer contracts it, is it something that it's going to kill every single deer? Like like CWD is pretty much, we have determined kind of that CWD is fatal, but is TB fatal in deer?
3: That's a really good question. You know, I think, so the timeline for CWD on average is about two years and, and you're right. Like every deer that gets CWD, like there's no recovery from CWD, right? Like once they get it, if something else doesn't kill them first, like CWD is going to get them, um, you know, EHD, you know, most animals die, but some recover TB looks, I I don't have a good answer because I, I, I'm, I know deer, but like, I'm not like the, the, deer disease, like person all the time, you know, we've got a lab. So I'm sure yeah. that deer are dying from TB bar none, but it, it seems to take a lot longer time for TB to sort of get to the point where it's going to kill deer. And I mean, it could be, you know, anywhere from four or five, six, maybe even seven years. So, and you think about the lifespan of a deer in the wild, there are very few deer that are going to get to like seven, eight, nine years old, you know, especially Once they have TB, but it's 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 a respiratory disease. It has not impacted our deer population at all. I would say in uh, you know that Northeast, it's the main concern with it. Honestly, is the the agricultural health and you know to a lesser extent the human health. um, And and that certainly would be increased more if we had more TB. We'd have a lot more risk associated with it. We've only had a handful of people test positive for TB that has been traced back to some sort of interaction with a TB positive deer a lot of times it's someone field dressing the animal and they cut themselves and so sort of like have this localized uh, outbreak that occurs um, and again the the treatment I'm not as familiar with obviously there's medication for it and I think it can be handled but um, you know nobody, Nobody really wants to contract TB and and certainly would be an impact to our our cattle industry. So it doesn't have really a population level impact, but I'm I'm certain deer have died from TB for sure.
4: Yeah, that kind of of led me to the next question, which I'm sure that like some people that that aren't necessarily doing a a ton of reading on it might ask. And that's, uh, you know, how transmissible are some of these communicable diseases to to humans. You know, I, I know that you just, like you just stated that TB can be uh, transmitted to humans uh, with certain kinds of contact. Um, but does uh, CWD CWD, I'm pretty sure EHD does not, you know, transmit to humans in any way, but is, is there any science or studies out there showing that CWD has any risk to humans?
3: Yeah, good question. And, and you're right. EHD has, is not a human health concern at all. Um, not a concern for dogs, cats, whatever. Um, um, TB, it's definitely like considered a human health concern. Um, you know, there's definitely, definitely advisement out there that if you shoot a, a known positive TB animal, you know, do not, you know, consume, probably, probably do not even handle that animal um, without any type of appropriate protection. So that being said, very few people have come down with TB after handling that. But, you know, that's not something you want to risk around with. Uh, CWD is not proven to be infectious to humans. Um, so that is really good. And, and there's a whole host of research out there that really supports that claim the concern with CWD is that it is in the same family of diseases as mad cow disease. So if you're familiar with the like 1990s, you know, outbreak in the United Kingdom, uh, a bunch of cattle came down with mad cow disease. Uh, A few people ate the meat from those animals and and they died um, because of it. So it was very much transmissible because they came down with something called variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is sort of the human uh, equivalent of this like prion disease, okay? Um, so Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease is, is a genetic disease. It's extremely rare. Some people do get it, um, and it, it does the exact same thing. It just sort of, you know, turns your brain into, into sponge. Um, just, just like CWD, variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease is basically attributed to eating contaminated meat. Uh, from a known positive cow, the good news is that has not been linked to or confirmed to be from white-tailed deer and consuming venison with positive CWD. So that's really good. There's still, there's actually some like conflicting studies going on out there. Um, one was done by uh, some researchers with the National Institute of Health. They tried to feed, you know, infected meat into macaques, like, which is a, a monkey has like a, a test. And through like, you know, normal oral exposure, you know, where they're just feeding them meat, like you would just normally eat, you know, rare venison, nothing happened. Um, But if you inject infectious material directly into their brain, they can track the disease, which, you know, you see a lot of articles that, you know, are very alarmist about that, but like, let's say, like nobody's like injecting infectious material into anybody's brain, so it's, it's more like a proof of concept rather than, you know, a traditional exposure method. So, you know, there's, there's one study it's not gone through the peer review process yet. And these are some researchers out of Canada. They said they started to see some symptoms through that traditional exposure method. Um, And that was, that came up a couple of years ago. I've not seen that literature or any of that information published since then. So until then, like we kind of can't really, go with it because it hasn't gone through this science based peer review process thing. And, uh, but that just, that, that's the always the alarm and the concern that it could mutate or could turn into something like that, but it has not been shown to, to have a link yet. You know, go ahead. So I have a, I have a, I have a question kind of for the panel, for, for the group here.
4: So like you're sitting in the tree stand and um this zombie deer comes walking by for for lack of a better term and uh you know you're pretty sure there's something there's something seriously wrong with this deer it obviously has some kind of infectious disease probably one of the three or four diseases we just talked about right what do you do do you do you, do you shoot the deer put it out of its misery and being able to you know at least contain that deer and then my second part of that question so I want to, I'd like to hear what what you whatever everybody might do, because it's kind of an ethical thing at that point. Like I'm shooting a deer that I know that I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to do anything with it. I'm just literally going to let it lay there or whatever I'm going to do. Second part of that question is uh, is for Chad and is is there some kind of protocol that the DNR wants us to do if if we do suspect that a deer is infected with some kind of disease said a zombie deer watched by it. we shoot it and uh i don't want to touch it i don't want to go anywhere near it should i just call the dnr to have them come out or is there some kind of protocol out there that they've uh, already you know kind of have in place
0: well i'll start the round so table I, because
4: yeah yeah go around the horn first
0: <clears throat> so i'll start the round table because if i had a a legal tag for that deer i would shoot it for sure just because i mean i i wouldn't want it to spread and i just yeah yeah even if i wasn't gonna be able to save the meat and i was gonna lose a tag like that's fine but if 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 that's what i saw that's that's my 12 cents as long as i had a legal tag obviously i don't know if there's different protocol maybe chad can get into that but
2: yeah i think that's a good point because i mean at the end of the day you're kind of doing the deer a favor right i mean you know you're eliminating the suffering portion for him you know but he could be eliminating the spread too that's, and that's, exactly that's yeah I, that's kind of where i was going with that it's too, like the walking so. dead you
0: shoot the zombie so you can't spread to somebody else for sure so <laughs> i would do the same thing um
5: you know i, I hunt in hillsdale so we uh that, that was uh, considered a cwd d zone for a while maybe it probably still is to be honest um you know I, and and I would do the same thing if I had a tag and, you know, there's, there's a check station pretty close by if I wanted to run it by there and have them check it. Now. So my question is, is if you do that and you take your deer with you know well you think it's got cwd and you take it to the dnr and they're able to confirm it well i guess they can't confirm it immediately right they got a test for it so yeah. well, but i was going to ask if you'd get your tag back but it doesn't sound like you could
0: probably not but let's go around the horn and then Jack, to get into that bob what do you what are you doing sleeping can you hear me <laughs> he's
5: taking a nap
4: <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just making sure i was on can you hear can you hear me yeah um what am I doing? I posed a question. I, I have a question now. Uh, so, so personally, I'm on the same, same lines as Ryan. I, like, I, you know, I'm kind of, you know, that gives me the heebie jeebies, like one that, you know, I don't even think I'm going to approach the Jerry, you know, but I'm, I'm going to put it off as misery just because, I, you know, if you see, see it, it, yeah, it does. It gives me the gives me the willies,
0: man. You watch too many zombie <laughs> <No>. movies, man. <laughs> For real, <laughs> it's Shaun of the Dead but, of the um, woods. But, but no, it,
4: You know, from an ethical standpoint, uh, you know, I, it, there's obviously something wrong with the deer. I would I would use that tag, uh, and eat my own tag just to. Um, you know for the betterment of you know the local deer herd and stuff like that but and, uh, it uh but at the same time like you would feel i would feel terrible i would feel terrible that i just killed an animal that i don't plan on harvesting that i don't plan i'm not going to do anything with right you know what i'm saying so it's it, I, again i just I, I like i you know me i like to like i like to thread the needle i like to i like to you know let's uh let's get on this razor's edge and i like to push it either way so i uh, like J- to uh to ask some questions so jason I got more questions. I got. I'm writing shit down. Well,
1: uh, so first, it's uh, first is the funny answer of it would probably be the only deer that gets close enough that I could shoot because it wouldn't get spooked.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's but, gonna spook when it's a zombie.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it would have to. It would have to have some kind of brain infection for sure yeah.
4: to come in front of you.
1: So, but I guess, I guess to be honest, I'd be sitting there and I would say, "Oh, that looks kind of weird." Hmm. Let nature take its course. See ya. I'll be honest. I'm, I guess I'm looking for some guidance. I'm letting it walk. I'm letting it walk and I'm saying, oh, that deer looked weird. Maybe I should let DNR know that I saw something odd and then I'm waiting for the next one to come by. Sorry. Not whacking it. Okay. Okay. Right. I like it. I like it.
0: All right. All right. So, so Chad, you can, that's all of our opinions. Watch Jason be the only one who's
5: legally correct.
3: I know. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. No, we've got, um, We've got we've got situations at a conference, So there, there's two two different situations that you see a deer like this. One one is you have a legal tag, and one is you don't have a legal tag. And like, you're so if you don't have a legal tag, I can't sit here and tell you to like legally put that deer down. Like, right? Because you don't know the, that it has it.
0: I mean, exactly. you're looking at signs. And, it could be normal, and it could just be just dazed out. It could be a Jimmy deer <laughs> so, just walking by. I can
3: I can and I can tell you I get. Tons of pictures sent to me every year by someone says, that someone has says, I got this picture of this deer. It looks really skinny. What's wrong with it?" And a lot of times, it's like a doe in August with like two <laughs> big fawns trailing it. And it's like, you know what? She's just been drained of milk for like three months. Yeah. Like she's just skinny, and it, it'll be okay. Um, sometimes they have these like fibromas all over them, which is you know those black warts. I don't know if you guys have ever oh, seen. Oh yeah, those. they're they're ugly looking but yeah. absolutely has no impact on the meat whatsoever. Um, so we, we just can't tell people to go and like shoot a deer if, it, if they don't have a license. But if they're able to send us a picture and we can look at it and have a biologist verify it, we can give them written permission to shoot that deer next time they see it. And if it's really sick, it's probably not gonna go far. Right. So And that written permission will protect you from any sort of penalty or anything. So you can shoot that deer anytime because a biologist has said, yep, that deer looks sick. We want to get it tested, and you can shoot it under the, under the, the guidance that, like, you have to get it to us to get it tested. Okay. So we've got that situation in place. Now, if you're sitting in stand, you've got a license, and that same scenario that Bob played out, you know, comes in front of you, you can shoot that deer. You've got to, you've got to put your tag on it because you can't shoot a deer and not have it tagged but you can bring it into a check station to VNR our office whatever and if it's really skinny like you say it is we can issue what we typically do is issue you a replacement antlerless tag regardless of whether it's a buck or a doe if it's a buck we'll we'll cut the antlers off for you and you can keep the keep the rack um, if you really want it um, but you got to sort of donate the meat but we'll give you a tag uh, to replace that that meat so and if it's late in the season we'll give you like a, a voucher or whatever for next year so you can go and, and do it next year so okay. we we try to we try to accommodate folks that way same with tb like what folks bring in just tb riddled deer they'll be like dude you don't want to eat this thing you're going to throw it away anyway here's the tag give us your deer, and uh, we'll get it tested and confirm. and uh you can go hunt and shoot yourself something healthy okay
0: so if we so what's the protocol if just if Like if we shoot a deer, should we be getting all of our deer tested?
3: Man. So that's, that's a million dollar question. Cause if you sit there and look at the guidance that literally the like centers for disease control and prevention and stuff put out, even though it's not been known to be transmissible to humans, their, their guidance basically says, if you're hunting in a known CWD area, you should get your deer tested, you know, just, just to be safe, just in case here's the problem with that is that labs and certainly like our, our agency staff can only handle so many deer that come through. Like we shoot 400,000 deer in the state of Michigan. (laughs) Like if, if all 400,000 deer were submitted to our agency for testing, it would bankrupt our whole agency. It would burn our staff out. Like you'd have months of wait time to get that deer, you know, results back to you. Like we can't do it that way. So, you know, our 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 guidance right now and what we're trying and this is this is like the nut we're trying to crack right this is like you've got areas where you know you have CWD and those hunters that are in those areas a lot of them want to get their deer tested some of them some of them don't care and that's fine but a lot of them want to get their deer tested or they're not going to shoot deer or they're only going to shoot big bucks basically and then you've got the whole rest of the state where maybe we haven't identified chronic wasting disease but maybe it's because it's not there or maybe it's because we just haven't looked very hard you know <laughs> so you know enabled in to inform hunters in that area we've got to do some sort of service to look there which is what we're trying to do but we're also limited in resources and capacity and what we can do <laughs> so if we start putting all our resources outside of the CWD area the people that are hunting in the CWD area are like yo <laughs> like we actually have it <laughs> yeah. why don't you do some efforts in here Uh, But if we continue to put it in there, then all we're doing is monitoring, you know, deer that are taken. And we really, it moves so slowly. We know what the status is going to be. It's just really a a service to the hunters to let them know what the, what the status of their disease is. So we're trying to like thread this needle where we're offering some different opportunities for hunters in known CWD areas to get their deer tested, but they got to do a little bit of work. Like we've got these, uh, self self uh, serve mailing packets available where you can go pick it up at any like county office or certain DNR offices. Um you can type in the, the link that shows you how to remove the lymph nodes. And trust me if I can do it, anybody can do it. Um, it sounds intimidating, but it's 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 not it's not hard and we've got a really good video online. Pop those lymph nodes out of the deer that you, you shot, put it in the, the baggie, put the the ice pack in, send it off and, and we pay for the postage and the testing. everything everything's done but but it goes right to the lab and it doesn't go and feed into our dnr like capacity where our dnr capacity is being used then from surveillance so that's where we have the drop boxes and maybe a few check stations here and there and we're trying to get people to submit deer heads for testing and again we're covering that cost on our own but you know that's that's a little bit more work on our end because we have to get the deer at the deer station have to have to lop the deer off the the deer head off the deer uh, then we have to get it to the lab we have to go through all this process of extracting the lymph nodes making sure the tag number is on it correct so we can contact the hunter if it's right mm-hmm. and it goes to a lab and get, so it's a it's a really long process
0: so it's a lot easier if we go through that <clears throat> excuse me that mail-in process that you were talking about then
3: yeah, we're just trying that this year for the first time. We've got about 2,000 packets out, and it's it's mostly in places that we've identified CWD before. So, okay. you know, the big areas are like Montcalm, Kent, um, uh, Ionia counties, and then we've got like Jackson County. And then uh, I think Dan was talking like in the Hillsdale County. I think they'd, they'd be eligible for some of that, too. Yeah. So,
0: Wasn't there a section up in the UP, too, I had heard that was along yeah. the Wisconsin border?
3: Yeah. Uh, we had one positive deer up in, uh, Dickinson County that came through, it was in 2018. Um, we've been doing surveillance up there, uh, since then we haven't found another positive, which is really good news. Um, but we've also not had, I'll say great participation in some of those areas. Um, you know, the first year you find CWD people are really interested in it. And then, uh, Second year, third year, it can, tends to wane a little bit more. Uh, we kind of refer to it as disease fatigue. Um, so uh, the good news is we haven't found any more. The bad news is we'll probably need a few more samples up there to really be a lot more confident.
2: So when you say like, you know, want, wanting to get samples and seeing samples, you know, and having the different check stations and everything around the state, are there any benchmarks or goals that are set like per county? that you know signed you know, like biologists such as yourself try to establish in order to get those that testing done.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's definitely biologists but it's it's not biologists like me. It's people that are way smarter that figure these things out. Um they've they've got uh, so the the short answer is yes. Uh, we we're we're sort of starting surveillance in a rotational manner around the state because we just can't tackle the entire state with the samples that we need county by county in one year it's just it's just too much for us to do Uh, so we're starting in the south where a majority of our cwd is and we have uh really goals set up for each county and and they're set up on a you know however many deer per county but but in reality um not every deer that's tested for cwd is equal and what i mean by that is um we could test uh, I'll say 500 button bucks out of a county, right? And the statistical value of testing 500 button bucks versus testing one buck that's like three and a half or four and a half years old is 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 greater for the for the one buck. So, like, you're more likely to find CWD in one older buck than a whole bunch of younger animals. So, you know, a lot depends on how many how many deer and what type of deer are submitted to get to that sample. So when we try to set things up, we try to set it up as like sort of like a yearling buck or a two and a half year old buck uh, in terms of the number. But, you know, depending on whether it's a a younger doe or an older buck, you know, that number could change and we might need to go a little bit above that, but we do have those numbers out there. It's actually online. I think we should have that map online. Um, I think it's just Michigan.gov slash CWD. And then you might have to do a click or two around it sort of for hunters, but uh we should have those those goals online uh, just to to help guide people at least in terms of where we're trying to go and what we're trying to get for in each county. Okay. I'll uh I'll link all this stuff in the description of this podcast for
0: anybody listening. So and then uh um the link for the for submitting the through the mail process too that we people can look into that if they're part of the CWD zone. So Yeah, that's awesome. that's really interesting.
5: <clears throat> I think we should lighten the mood with a snort.
0: um all right so let's get into i guess the controversial part of this that the Uh, let's go bob loves controversy (laughs) so i know you know the the main way you mentioned that the the main way this is spread is through saliva um and urine and and things of that nature so obviously this brought upon the baiting ban that happened a few years back and that You know, I know that's super controversial because, you know, people ask the question, how come I can have a food plot and have deer eating off the same thing that's planted in the ground, but I can't spread some corn in a, in a big 20 by 20 foot circle. What's the difference? So, you know, so I guess coming directly from, you know, an expert in in it. So, so what is the difference between being able to plant a food plot or being able to spread corn in a gigantic circle?
3: Yeah. Um, well, uh, The first part is, you know, really authority and what what we can and can't do, Um, you know, from from an agency standpoint, uh, you know, food plots are basically considered or classified as agriculture, you know, in the Department of Natural Resources or the Natural Resources Commission, who is sort of our like checks and balance for for DNR. It's that seven member appointed panel that sort of approves our recommendations for, for regulations. Neither one of us have authority to ban food plots, so not not saying we would ban a food plot um, if we did, but you know we don't have authority to do that. So of course, food plots are going to exist because we can't ban cornfields or soybean fields or anything like that. And again, not saying we would do that anyway. But here's here's I think the, the answer that you probably want, and that is, you know, food plots tend to exist on a much broader scale and is there risk in con, con- uh, congregating deer in any manner on the landscape? And, and the answer is very easily. Yes. You know, deer are social animals. They live in social family groups. And if there's a food source there, chances are that those food, uh, those, those deer are going to continue to go to that food source over and over again until it either dries up it's harvested or they eat it all. Um, So there's absolutely risk involved with that. There's actually some, we've actually got a student at Michigan State University right now. Um, she's, She's doing a master's project on contact rates between deer at bait sites and at food plots. And that information is, I'm hoping that comes out next year. I'm not sure where she's at. I think she's getting pretty close to her and she's got about two years into her study so we're starting to see some preliminary research coming out but the short answer is that the contact rates and when i talk about contact rates i'm basically talking about how close are deer you know are the deer actually touching each other or how close are they getting you're going to see higher contact rates at uh, bait sites than you are at food plots and that's if you think about that even like a a small like quarter acre kill plot that people are planning. Um, You know, deer are gonna go into it, but they're gonna hit all different parts of it, maybe at different times, maybe even at the same time, but they're gonna be spread out a little bit more, you know, sort of not interrupting each, each deer's sort of own personal bubble. But if you see deer, especially two family groups, converge on a bait site at one time, what happens when you see two like matriarchal does get together? There's, yeah. there's like fireworks that happen, yeah, right? Yeah. Like they rear back, they kick, they're, they're trying to drive each other off. And that can even happen within the same family group. But you're, you're putting an animal's nose in the same 10 by 10 spot over and over and over and over again because we as humans, we as hunters keep replenishing the food. Like it's not like a food plot that like once they eat it, it's gone and then they're gone. Like once they eat all the bait pile, what do we do? We put more out and then we keep putting more out and we keep doing that because we're trying to alter the behavior of deer, right? We're trying to get them to use that spot a lot more. So when we sit there with our, with our bow, with our crossbow, with our shotgun, with whatever, that they're likely to show up. But as you keep sitting and putting that bait out there and, and, training that deer to come to that spot they're putting their nose in the soil they're defecating they're urinating in that same you know 10 by 10 spot over and over and over again so it's all about risk management and man like i know that like disease at this time you know for the last three years everybody's like diseased out right And we've <laughs> talked about risk and mitigation efforts so i get that this is probably hitting people sideways with it but You know, this is this is what we're trying to do to at least slow the spread of things a little bit. And uh, I'm hopeful that some of the models that this this researcher is developing, some of the the field studies that they're doing is going to at least show like the impact of at least what this uh, like a bait ban will do. Like CWD is going to continue to be here. And, um, you know, we the bait ban is not designed to get rid of it but it's meant to sort of slow, slow the spread of it and you know it'll it'll be interesting to see you know what this looks like from a from a modeling standpoint if this how this slows the spread by having bait on the landscape or not having bait on the landscape
0: so you had mentioned that um it can be spread through urine too so yeah. what what about you know mock scrapes and people that have are using you know the the Tink 69 I know those came from like those came from like ATA certified you know places but i mean does does doing that i guess um draw deer to that same spot same concept as baiting is kind of what i've wondered because you're drawing a doe and a buck or whatever to use these scrapes and concrete to that exact spot over and over
3: yeah and there's there's some controversy with the urine piece too right you know some states have just gone full in and said if it's a natural urine you you can't use it it's fully banned yeah
0: you've got to use synthetics
3: in those states i think i read right Yep. yep yep got to use a synthetic um i'm not sure if any state is even banned synthetics or not i'd have to look into that um some states won't touch that uh that regulation at all and and there's there's some research out there that shows that you know from a like a concentration and like the pre like if the prions are concentrated in saliva versus concentrated in urine, that urine there it's it's not nearly as, you know, um concentrated, you know, or infectious in in urine as it is in like saliva or feces. Um so so they definitely pushed that very hard. You know, here in Michigan, um basically you can use natural urine if if it's, if it's this, you know, check mark through the, through this ATA, and it's not even ATA anymore. It's uh, another organization took that over. I think it's called responsible sense or responsible hunting sense okay. or something. Uh, it's, it basically, they took it over from the ATA, but it's basically, uh, it's basically like a, a higher level of, of protection uh, that they're, that they're operating under in terms of testing and, and making sure that their, their herd is, as insulated as possible from contracting CWD, you know, some of the, some of the critics will point to and say like, you know, it's really hard to tease out urine because some of the collection measures, you know, are incorporating, you know, fecal matter as well. Yeah. So it's yeah. not just the urine that's going into it, but some of the feces. And then obviously if a deer is, you know, salivating, you know, there, there's collection measures, measures that, that are going into that too. So, you know, we, we feel that this is the, the, we we feel like we've got a really good like regulation that sort of like balances, you know, the risk with, with the allowance and not, you know, the the thing we don't want to do is like, we don't want to get CWD and start taking everything away from hunters. Like, listen, you can't bait, you can't, you know, use your mock scrapes. You can't do this. You can't do that. And then it's just like, man you you kind of like taking the fun a little bit out of some of the hunting that people enjoy doing. So we don't want to do that. So we're trying to like make these, changes you know responsibly uh because really our our interest is in like having a sustainable and healthy deer herd and you know we see cwd as a long-term threat to that it's not gonna i'll be honest with you like you guys all have like you know little gray hair i've got way more gray hair than anybody else so
0: i don't know i don't think whoa, you can whoa, see whoa, mine. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> this, this guy's mr salt and pepper over here I got, I got a lot
3: <laughs> either way it's it like it's not going to have like major impacts in like our lifetime so like we're doing things for like you know years down the road based on the knowledge that we have today and you know i think i think if people understand that maybe they can at least appreciate the efforts a little bit more they might not agree with necessarily the steps that were taken or they might just say you know i you're going too far too fast you know yeah we don't even know if this is going to happen this way but we've seen enough places that have had cwd for 20 30 plus years and um, it's they're definitely starting to see some things so yeah
0: so one of the other. Go ahead.
3: I got I got, a,
4: I got a question real quick. So, I mean, since the, when did that baiting ban occur?
3: Was that like, what, 2015, 14, somewhere on there? We, uh, um, we, so the first time we had a baiting ban was in, gosh, what was it was 2007. It was basically a, a lower peninsula-wide ban based on our management plan or response plan because we found it in a captive cervid. Got reinstated. Yeah. My timeline's fuzzy because this, this preceded me, I want to say, around 2011, 12-ish. Um, had it for a couple years. In 15, we got it in Ingham County, and we restructured our bait band to only have, like, those three counties, right? Like, Ingham, Clinton, Shiawassee, that sort of were in around where that positive was located. Then it just kept increasing until we found it in Montcalm County, found it all over the place, and started having it in, like, eight to nine counties and that's when uh our, our leadership said, let's just do the whole lower peninsula and pitch it that way and our commission was supportive of it. I think that was in I think that was passed in eighteen and I think it took effect in nineteen.
4: Okay. Yeah. Now is there is there any research out there like that you know, we've we've obviously all lived through the pandemic and um, saw all the, the different ways that the, the government kind of stepped in to try to implement a, a way to, uh, you know, whatever, slow the curve or whatever the hell they used to call it. But sure. uh, is, is, how, is this, how is, has it affected the curve? You know what I'm saying? The debating the ban Has it slowed it down? Are you, are you guys seeing less numbers of CWD? Or is it pretty consistent across the board? like there's really no change to it or is there any not enough data on it
3: yeah so here's the challenge with cwd like i'll tell you that we've had fewer positives since the baiting ban but that's not because of the baiting ban it's because we haven't tested as many deer and we haven't tested as many deer in the core area so you know if you sometimes you'll see like online and chat forums like keyboard warriors say like you know oh, there's way fewer cwd positive animals but well, that's it's because you're not testing in the right areas or the same amount as we were, you know, in like 17, 18, even 19. Um, you know, in talking with like epidemiologists, again, people who are way smarter than me and know, know disease spread and know the disease a lot more than I do, they'll tell you that, you know, a four-year period is not really long enough to evaluate spread in CWD because it moves so slowly. You know, it's one of these things that, is like a slow burn someone someone uh someone brought the analogy to me at one of my meetings that it it moves it like a glacier a glacier's pace so like if you go one year like up to alaska and look at a glacier and then go the next year and look at that glacier it's probably going to look largely the same as what it was before but if you go and look at that glacier now and then you know compared to what it looked like 15 20 25 years ago that's when it probably looks a lot different. So, and and they're, they're, they're comparing CWD spread to like this, the speed of a glacier and how it moves. So it's really hard to evaluate the effectiveness of a regulation change, even after like a couple years, like I can tell you right now, like I can evaluate the impact of antler point restrictions in like a year or two compared to like the impact of like a baiting ban because there are two different things that you're measuring that sort of have different timelines associated with it. Um, I think the best way to do that is get some of the data that you've got, and then you kind of have to model that out. And I know just like modeling brings forward like cringes because you've got, you think you just picture like, you know, some like, statistician who never gets outside or really knows deer <laughs> at all and are just pounding keyboards and like see what it looks like and predicting what it looks like for 30, 40, 50 years from now and you know that's really the best that we can do honestly uh, and you just try to hope that the information that goes into your model is the best that you can provide knowing that it's not going to be perfectly right. You just hope that it's not very wrong.
0: So I've got <clears throat> another question that's I know, kind of controversial. It was a question that I posed um, related to baiting. So, if <clears throat> if uh, if this is you know as contagious as you, as you say and as serious as an issue, why is it okay for the, the for the liberty hunt for the disabled hunters to be able to bait, but not your everyday hunters or maybe even youth hunters? Not that I disagree because they're disabled and that's their chance to hunt, but why you know i know this is questions that people ask like why is it okay for them if it's so serious that we need to prevent you know deer from congregating why is it okay for that weekend for them to do it compared to like i said late season early season hunters you know
3: yeah uh so we do allow liberty season hunters to bait liberty season is a two-day season in mid-september we also allow individuals who participate in the independence hunt, which is a four-day season in October to bait and you' they're also allowed to put bait out a couple days ahead of time um, you know just to try to get deer to find it and acclimate it with it. Um, you know the, <laughs> the uh-huh. biological the biological uh-huh. answer to that is that there is a lot less risk associated with allowing, Probably what amounts to about ten to fifteen thousand people to put bait on the ground for what accounts for six days, maybe eight days with pre-baiting, then allowing four hundred thousand people to potentially put bait on the ground for upwards of ninety days. Right. So that's that's the biological answer. Is that there's there's a there's a degree of magnitude and risk associated with just allowing a small cross-up cross-subsection of people who are eligible to bait during that time for just like six days and the risk associated with that, then opening it up to hundreds of thousands of people to put bait out for weeks and weeks and weeks, if not months at a time. That's the biological answer. The political answer is that we probably would not have been able to obtain a lower peninsula-wide baiting ban if we didn't have that exception baked in. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I feel, I mean,
4: I feel I, like we're putting Chad on the hot seat here. Yeah, I
0: know that was kind of a hot <laughs> seat question, but, um, you <laughs> I know, I live just, on a hot yeah. seat with all these questions. This I know. Not the first I know. And, 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 so. and like I said, it's not that I, I, I agree with the, the, the you know, the Liberty Hunt for, for disabled hunters because, you know, that's their kind of their chance. You know, they don't have the opportunities that all, I guess all of us have. So I'm for it. I just, I know it's a a question that's came up like, well, why is that okay? And I kind of knew the answer that you were going to say, you know, I mean, it made sense, but I like that you said the political answer.
3: (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, so there's, there's the legitimate beef there too. Like biologically. Yeah. It should apply to everyone. Right. You know, that's, that's where you reduce the the most amount of risk and it's easy to communicate. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I don't think we would have gotten what we've gotten past, which basically means you're, I'm trying to think of an analogy. I'm coming up short. I don't know. It's like you, you have to like cut your finger off to save your arm type thing. Like you've got to make something happen for at least a few folks and try to minimize the damage uh, that, that, you know, that we felt that would happen rather than open it up for everybody. If we didn't do that, then, you know, maybe like you lose the entire arm. So instead you just lose the finger and yeah, it's confusing. Um, But um, that's, that's kind of where it landed.
0: All right, last question on the baiting band, then we'll we'll change it. (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll kind of wrap this thing up. But so Bob and I, we we hunted the up for years, Um, all really all of our hunting life up until a couple years ago, and we saw the economic impact that baiting had up there. I mean, first or second week of November, you see the semis roll in, and I mean that's how businesses survived up there. So. I know you probably don't have this answer, but like, what do you think the baiting ban has done to the economy? Cause that was my biggest concern is like, what has it done to mainly think in the UP? I know Northern Michigan, I mean, it's probably going to affect too, but like the UP, like, man, that, that time of year is when places, some places that only open during hunting season, and they're not open the rest of the year. So, yeah.
3: Yeah, so I mean, I, I have an answer for this too, but I'm going to chat Chad You can so you can still bait in the UP, except for one small little area. So yeah. the the baiting ban is in the in the lower peninsula. Um, gosh, I don't know. I, I I'm, I'm kind of wondering what Bob's thinking, but I, you know, just driving up north not too long ago, <laughs> stopping for gas. I'm not sure it had any impact because you can easily buy exactly, can,
4: exactly. I don't. There's buy. no impact. You can buy, buy it at any gas station, at, at on any road up north. You're going to come across ten different places that are selling deer feed. It says right on the right on the big ass yeah. sign, painted yeah. in John Deere yeah, green. That's,
0: that's kind of what I was getting at deer feed. with this whole question because, like, you know, I work for a place and. I mean it's a big part of my business right now is, is selling deer feed. And I mean Deer
4: corn says right on the back. Yeah.
0: yeah. Deer I mean, corn. So so the the short answer is, is, is zero economic impact. <laughs> well, you
3: know, I mean you know the effect, official- yeah, okay. The official answer is like I, I I don't know like we we don't really measure the, like the economic stuff of right. like it. so we I don't I don't have a good answer. I was more either. looking
0: for an opinion I guess but I yeah, know you guys I, don't live on opinions. I'm guessing the well, DNR yeah, doesn't and, have the ability to
5: uh, ban the sale know. of it. I'm guessing no.
3: Okay. No, we do not. That's uh, that's commerce and, and the DNR can't do that. If that were if that were to happen, that would have to be a, a legislative action. That
0: would be a big legis- legislative act to, to yeah. ban the sale I, of it. So we need to. So so to kind of wrap this up, um, what's the long term plan of for Michigan for for, for CWD? Wow, that's a I, I know that's right a there. that's a you know another hour long question, but I guess in a nutshell, what's the maybe 10 year, 20 year plan to, to, I know you can't really stop it, but it's just to continue to slow it. And.
3: Yeah. So, you know, I I think, I think what you just said was really important is like, we, we, we can't stop it. Like with what we know now, we can't stop it. So what, what I think our state has done, and, and this is not just the DNR, but honestly, some of our like elected officials, you know, we've, we've communicated the risk about this. They've made, money available to researchers. So we've sunk a lot of money into research. Um, and, and that's something that Michigan should be, you know, really commended for. Um, if you, if you start looking up, you know, Michigan CWD research somewhere, there's a whole host of little short videos and, and, you know, projects that have things that are associated with it, that they are, these projects are going to move the needle in terms of how much we know about CWD. Cause even though we've had this for, you know, a couple years and it's been in the Midwest for 20 years uh, and it's been in the continent for, you know, know, 60, 70 years, we're still learning about it. You know, it's still something that we're, we're trying to understand. So I think that's, that's an important commitment to try to keep up with is try to learn more about it so we can make informed management decisions rather than, you know, going with like best management practices that we think will help it. And, you know, based on what we have, but we don't have a lot of data maybe to back some of that up, which is what some States and, and maybe we have done a little bit of too. Um, you know, we just kind of look at the expert opinion on things, go with the way, but now we're actually taking the next step. And it's like, all right, let's find out how effective some of this stuff is. That's why we talk about the, 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 the baiting contact race, the food plot stuff. We're doing stuff like that. We're doing movement studies. We're doing a lot of really cool stuff. We're starting to dabble in like genetics Um, so there's some, there's some emerging research that's being done there to see if there might be some sort of, you know, at least resistance that can help slow it down a little bit. Other than that, you know, we're, we're really looking at like monitoring. So over the next couple of years, what I hope that our agency is able to build up is a fairly comprehensive map of that, that we have a lot of confidence in and sort of pointing out where the disease exists and where the disease doesn't exist, where we can't find it. Because right now we've got the place where we know it is because we've done a lot of testing there and a whole lot of other part of the state that we haven't found it, but we haven't really looked very hard either. So yeah. if we can, if we can build that map up and start doing like sort of rotational surveillance and get enough samples out of every county, we can present it to hunters as an informative map and basically says, you know, if you're concerned about CWD, you should probably avoid some of these spots over here because yeah. that's where we have it the worst. If you don't care about CWD, have fun. Go hunt wherever you want to, right. um, you know, what, whatever you want. But there are – because every person has their own sort of level of risk that they're willing to take, you know. Like some people think they're risky by, like, driving – down to the gas station without putting a seatbelt on. Like, you know, that's, that's risky to people. Other people are like, you know what, I'm going to jump out of a plane. and That's totally cool. <laughs> or I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go bungee jump. You know, there's all sorts of risk levels that people have. So we're just trying to make information available to them uh, so they can make their best informed decision. And at the same time, support research so that we can try to manage this herd in a sustainable and hopefully healthy and non-disease impacted way as much as possible.
0: All right. I got one more controversial thing to talk
3: about.
1: <laughs> Can you see my hand raised? So Bob's Bob, so excited.
0: So real quick, um, we've talked about it numerous times on on this podcast, but the new mandatory harvest reporting, was any of that around getting more information I was say. related to CWD or is that just to get more more data of where deer are getting killed. Like, can you go into that, I guess, briefly?
3: Yeah, uh, the state, so we're moving for the first time. Hunters have to report their harvest through online or, or mobile app. Uh, first time ever we're moving that way. I can tell you that the move to mandatory reporting was not based on the presence of disease in the state. It was. It's because we want better and faster estimates for our harvest than what we're currently getting. Yeah. So the way we estimate harvest right now is through a postseason survey. It goes out to about 10 to 15 percent of hunters. And from that, we can generate an estimate, build confidence intervals around it. It's statistically defensible. Um, it's it's really good. I mean, it's it's like a 70, 80 page document. Not everybody necessarily buys into it, but I understand why. Um, the problem is that our response rates for those surveys have been going down. Uh, 2000, it was like 75% response rate. So we were getting three out of every four surveys back. Uh, Last year, it was like 35%. So what happens when you do that is that your confidence intervals increase around your estimate, which basically means the level of uncertainty of your estimate increases. So we want to have a much better understanding of the, the estimate for deer that are being taken, county to county, deer management unit, statewide, et cetera. So that's why we're moving in that direction. Uh, But I will say that in developing that system, we do have like disease surveillance in mind. So that's why some of the questions that are asked, some of the, like we've got this map location, like Ryan, you shot a deer, like I don't know if you reported it or not, and you don't have to implicate yourself <laughs> if you didn't that's fine but like you've I got a map <laughs> you you better <laughs> you've got a map where you're, you're trying to put the harvest on a map to as, as basically as close as you're comfortable doing and what we're trying to do with that is incorporate some of that information into disease surveillance so like ryan if you're deer if you decided to submit that one for cwd or tb and it came back positive like we would really ask you exactly where that is because county level data for disease kind of doesn't cut it. Like we need to know exactly where things are as best as we can, especially if it's in a new area, right? Like if, yeah. if a new positive popped up in a County that, you know, we've never detected it before, we just don't want to tell people like, yeah, it's positive in this County. Like they're going to know, they're they're going to want to know like where in the County is it in like my backyard? Is it on the other end of the County? Like, where is it? If we have that information, one, we're able to understand how many deer are being taken by hunters around that area so we can talk with them, communicate to them about getting their deer harvested. Um, but two, it's also like a notification system. So, you know, again, if, if some of you guys aren't interested in shooting a potentially CWD-positive animal, I think you would want to know if, like, your neighbor submitted a deer that had cwd yeah. Uh, that was, that was detected. And maybe it's the neighbor that you don't talk to, you know, the guy that, you know, is just not one, you know, seeing eye to eye with you. So you don't talk about it, you don't hear about it, but now when you harvest a deer, we can, you know, because of this reporting system, we can communicate to you right away. Like, Hey, like we found a CWD positive animal this year. It's in a new location. You know, if you're interested in getting your deer tested for CWD, click this link and you can go there and find out ways how to do it. So it's a way to communicate faster and we wanted to try to integrate that into the new reporting system because we thought that that would be valuable to folks
0: yeah Hmm. that's really cool um i yeah and i did report it i did report it um and it was super easy and then we've talked about it i don't really know why it's controversial like it's not that big of a deal and that's that's for a different conversation but yeah it took me like a whopping 45 seconds i think to report it even to like drag my location on the map like it was super cool and um typically at the beginning of every episode jason he gives us a harvest update so it's kind of cool we've been watching the harvest as it grows like every every episode and um i think we've even surpassed like the amount of deer that were checked in last year already like it's it's crazy the amount of deer that have been harvested so
3: far well that was uh so it was volunteer- it was open voluntarily to everyone last year, and that's we get that criticism a lot too like why don't you just make this voluntary? Well, last year was voluntary, and we had like seven thousand year <laughs> submitted like through the entire year
0: that's funny because I um, didn't even know that it existed last year
3: yeah and, and there probably could have been some communication improvement on that to be honest with you wow. um so you know we'll 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 take the blame on that a little bit but like, dude, we've got like almost 600,000 deer hunters in the state. Like <laughs> I, we should have more than like six or 7,000. Like we know, I know we put it out. At the worst
0: deer harvest in the history of Michigan.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's watch that number. I'm telling you, watch that number. From like November 15th through
0: November sixteenth. Oh, I'm, I'm excited like, to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> it's
3: gonna it's gonna blow that, you know, and Jason, Jason knows stats and you guys know it too, but like that y axis that shows you how many deer well, actually you guys don't have this because total number, but I've got an internal dashboard that has a lot more data to it that when it's submitted, including day by day harvest. And, you know, I've got the days on the what the, the horizontal axis and the, like how many on the y-axis. It's going to blow that y-axis, that vertical yeah. axis out of the water because, <laughs> I mean, we're probably going to see, you know, anywhere between 50 and 100,000 deer reported in those first two days. You're going to crash the, the app. <laughs> <laughs> We've had those discussions. Well, I, you hopefully know, I hope you did some server happen, tests on this thing. <laughs> I think there's a non-zero chance that that could happen, but we... They feel pretty confident that's going to withstand the, yeah. the, the bandwidth to it. So, fingers crossed.
0: Yeah. Well, this yeah. is uh, this has been awesome. Um, I I learned a lot. I thought I had a decent understanding of CWD. I don't. Um, you boys got any other questions?
2: Yeah. No. No questions for me. I uh, I just want to say, Chad, just hat, hats off to you and your team. Uh, it's super cool what you guys are doing, and uh, we keep up the gr- great work.
3: Thanks. Appreciate
2: that. So. Uh being a Hillsdale hunter,
5: um I, I did have a question. Um I noticed uh two years ago we had to mandatory um turn our deer in well just bring it to the station and then they would uh they would take the head. Um and then you guys stopped doing that. I'm assuming the reason you guys stopped doing that is because the numbers were getting better. Is that correct? Or is that a false understanding?
3: yeah so we stopped doing that we we dabbled with some of the mandatory requirements for submitting heads uh in certain parts over time um what what we realize is that honestly uh it's it's eating into our capacity quite a bit so it's preventing us from doing surveillance in other parts of the state because once you make it a requirement most people will bring their head in and it really it's a great way to bring the numbers up and drive the numbers up and find, you know, a disease that might be hiding there. But uh, that's pretty much the only place we can look. So we've tested so many deer now in Jackson and even Hillsdale County that we have a pretty good understanding of of what it exists. Now we just we just had a positive in Hillsdale County. Um, gosh, I don't know this year earlier in the year. Um, I think it was a. either a symptomatic deer or it was a roadkill deer but it's not that surprising because it's right across the border from jackson where we've been finding literally dozens of positive animals out of a fairly small area so when we start releasing some of those requirements it's because we've tested so many deer and we can continue to test a lot of deer but because we've tested so many it doesn't really change our confidence levels a whole lot. And I'm trying to think of like maybe a good analogy to to give you guys, but you know, once, once you fill like a bucket up with water, like so far, it's like heavy, right? If you just keep putting a little bit more water in it, a little bit more, like it doesn't get a whole lot heavier. Like it's, it's filled, like you've kind of reached capacity with most of that stuff. So we can continue to dump water in that bucket and it's, it's not going to change the weight of that bucket a whole lot because we've already tested so much. Um, so that's why we're trying to shift in some of those areas where we've tested a ton of deer. I mean, literally thousands in some places, tens of thousands of deer uh, to these self-service mailing kits because we, you know, we, we don't need the data to uh, understand this. The scope of the spread of the disease in that area. Now, in a couple of years, we'll probably revisit that and, and hit it again and ask you guys for samples again. Maybe not from a mandatory standpoint, but just to build on the data set that we have um, to see, you know, maybe where the outline of the, the the disease might have changed over, you know, three or four years' time. But to do it every year, it, it's just sort of repeating efforts and not providing a lot of statistical knowledge you know from that same location it's a long-winded way of saying is we got a lot of information the first time around and thanks
5: yeah. how are we looking or is it getting is it like I, I don't know if you have the numbers in front of you but um I, the season isn't over this year but how are how was how was it looking last year as compared to the year before you're
3: talking about just overall harvest or like disease sampling? like
5: like like cwd cases
3: yeah so our our cases for CWD are, are pretty small right now, but again, that's, that's because we're not in like the, the, the heart of the areas that have CWD that we know of. So we're putting a lot of our efforts outside of those areas. So we're trying to build up confidence and try to understand if it's in a new place that we previously haven't, haven't identified it. Um, so we haven't tested many from those like core hotspot areas. So yeah. actually the number of positive animals that we've tested so far, are Really small, um, and most of them have came from. You know, we've we do employ like uh, like federal sharpshooters in a few small areas, like parts of Jackson County, parts of Gratiot County, with landowner permission um, because they usually have a lot of deer, and we're finding positive animals. And and the landowner has complete say over how many deer are taken, what type of deer are taken, et cetera. Um, those are where the positives are coming from, um, places that we know it exists. Um, but very few outside of those areas. So all in all, that's very encouraging. But as I was talking about earlier, it's, it takes a long time to track some of the spread with some of this stuff.
0: Bob or Jason, what do you guys got?
3: I'll go go first, Jason. All right, Bob. (laughs) Jason's (laughs) had his hand up for like hours. Poor guy. Jason,
4: I'm cutting you off. I'm cutting you off, dude. He's Um, used to it. Question Question one, how do I apply for said federal sharpshooter job? <laughs> <That> sounds amazing. <laughs> not a serious question, but I, I do have a serious question, and, and I'm going to go a little bit um, away from the disease stuff because we pounded that to death. But um, so Michigan is generally not known as like a big buck state, right? It's not a destination state. You don't get a lot of uh, we don't get a lot of uh, you know um, out-of state hunters and things like that that come here to try to harvest big bucks like you do like you see in Iowa Kansas Illinois places like that one your opinion your opinion uh, you, you you can throw some science in there if you want but um your opinion on why Michigan is not that uh, that much of a big buck state and
3: two how do we become that yeah um yeah So part of my opinion and part of it, I think, is is science based is like I think it's really difficult to compare ourselves to like Iowa, Illinois, um, just based on like the soils that we have. Honestly, like the soils there, there is there is really good work out there that's done the soil types that they have in Iowa and like Illinois, um, you know, southwestern Wisconsin, stuff like that. It's it's that old, like, glacial soil that is just super fertile. It's why it's why they're like farmland there is like through the roof, right? Because it's just super productive, and that translates all the way through the habitat to deer. So, you know, look, I don't, I don't think we'll ever get bucks like they grow in like Iowa or some parts of Illinois or maybe southwestern Wisconsin, like. The habitat might look the same in some areas, but I'm telling you, like, the soils are completely different. And, you know, because of that, some of the nutrition is is going to be different for those animals, too. Now, you start talking about places like Indiana and Ohio, we do have those same soils, at least in southern Michigan. If you start getting in northern Michigan, it's a little bit different. and Certainly, it's different in the UP. Um, and, and we could have deer similar to what's grown in like places like indiana and ohio and for some hunters they would be ecstatic with that and occasionally you see those deer pop up on various social media feeds and whatnot right like you see this like great buck and it's like oh hell that was (laughs) that was actually a michigan deer that guy didn't go to like ohio to shoot it pretty cool um so it happens i think it's going to get better some of the problems that we have right now um are uh Michigan is one of the only states, at least in the Midwest, that still shoots more antler deer than antlerless deer in a given year. So our ratios, our harvest ratios are out of whack um, compared to like when I was managing deer in Indiana, we would easily shoot one and a half times more antlerless deer than we did bucks. So there's a, there's a piece to that in Michigan. Man, you're looking at like, man, like something like, seven does or seven, seven antlerless deer for every 10 bucks that were shoot, shot. So we've been really trying to emphasize antlerless harvest. And, and what happens with antlerless harvest is a couple things. One, um, you know, the bucks aren't expending a lot of energy to breed deer that are, you know, that are eventually gonna be going to maybe one or two cycles or get shot in December. Cause a lot of Michigan deer hunters are shooting does in December. Um, or at least like after Thanksgiving. And if you look at, so here's, here's one thing to do on your harvest report. Um, since Jason, you're the, you're the data guy, look at the buck harvest now and look at the antler harvest and look at the antlerless harvest. And you're probably at like, I'm going to say at least 60% antlered, 40% antlerless, and it might be higher. It might even be closer to like 65% antlered. So all the way up through right now, Michigan hunters are focusing on bucks and I'm telling you that's going to continue for about another week to two weeks, uh, at least through the first couple of days of firearm season. And that's when the switch happens and you're going to start to see that, that gap close, but it'll never fully close all the way. So there's a, for me, there's a timing of antlerosis harvest and there's a, uh, there's a number of antlerless harvest that could greatly improve our quality of our bucks if that alone is, is handled, the other piece is that Michigan hunters just generally tend to be happy with the first buck that they see and shoot that. <laughs> and that has gotten better because I can look at the data from 15 to, man, I don't even know if it's 15 years ago, If I'm going to say 15 years ago, might be even sooner. Uh, you, you were looking at like 70% of our harvest was like yearling bucks. Because people just like I got to get my buck, I got to get my buck, I got to get my buck, and they shoot the first buck that comes by. Um, I think there's, I think there's a learning process involved. So people realize if they grow a little bit longer, uh, they're going to get much bigger rack, and they're going to get rewarded at least for a second year and and maybe even a third year. And then I think that uh, the antler point push, you know, certainly a couple years ago and it still exists today, has definitely helped that because what you're doing there is you're you're forcing people to basically pass on most of the yearling bucks. So, you know, the attitudes where antler point restrictions exist, like in our Northwest 12, 13 counties, um, people really seem to love them up there uh, because it's, it's a proven commodity. You're going to get, you're going to graduate bucks from a year to two years easily. uh, And that's going to, that's going to make a difference.
0: So what you're seeing is shoot more does.
3: That Exactly. I've Got been it. preaching
4: this. <laughs> I've been preaching this forever. Well, I, I decided exactly not, and I
0: decided to shoot a bigger buck. So <laughs> <laughs> nah.
4: that's the answer, that's the exact answer that I wanted to hear. Thank you, Chad. Yeah. Um, yeah this is. Uh, I, I won't talk anymore because I've already taken up too much time in this podcast. But uh, thank you for coming on, man. I, we really appreciate it. Like uh, everything that uh, all the all the knowledge you fed us in this uh, episode's been been great appreciate it thank
0: you Jason fellow DNR guy
1: all right um of course Chad appreciate your time uh it's an interesting topic to hear about um I think it's funny like you said with people shooting the first buck everyone claims that they're a meat hunter and they're this and they're that and it's just so funny that their meat hunter always has a three inch antler on top of it um when Michigan could shoot a, you know, could shoot a doe or it comes down to, well, if I pass this four point year and a half old buck, the neighbor's going to shoot it. So I'll just shoot it on my property. Right. Um, and it would maybe take that regulation change of like forcing people to pass on that deer to then, okay, if everyone plays by the same rules now I'm in, but if it's just an on your honor type thing, it maybe doesn't, uh, doesn't go very far. I know that, or I guess I don't know for sure I'm pretty sure that most of the folks on this call from the podcast crew perspective might have a little bit different view than I do on the baiting ban because I haven't baited deer in my time as as a Michigan hunter so it might be a bit of a hot take my opinion is I want the baiting ban insisted uh, enacted for eternity, to the point where it doesn't get looked at as a ban. It's just in the rule book, it says baiting is illegal, and every reason goes, oh, yeah, baiting is illegal, not baiting is still banned. So yeah. anyway, we don't have to go back and forth on that. I'm, you're, I'm sure you're it's a bit of a hot take. That. You're going to end on that hot
0: take? <laughs> oh, man. I'm glad we left so, him on mute the whole
5: time.
1: Yeah. Anyway, um no, appreciate your insight, appreciate your guidance and, and the facts that you shared. I think it's uh useful to spread you know quality knowledge around a, a topic like this. So I appreciate uh spending some time with us here in the middle of the Whitetail Rut. <laughs> yeah, thanks Jason appreciate Who scheduled that. this
0: shit. <laughs> Chad, any uh any final comments from you?
3: No, I uh you know, it's the first time meeting and interacting with all you guys, and uh, it's been fun. Like I, I, don't know how long we've been talking, but it seems like it lo- hasn't been that long. A lot so, longer uh, than we
0: in, but it doesn't seem like. <laughs> it.
3: <laughs> but you know that's good because I think everybody's still at least cracking smiles and laughing. So I appreciate that, and these are the these are the fun kind of podcasts to do when everybody's just kind of talking and, and, and asking questions and can kind of joke around and rib each other a little bit so somehow we
0: made light of a real depressing topic we did
3: <laughs> it's <laughs> really it can't all be serious it's what we do absolutely here. <laughs> yeah. yeah well that's impressive that you guys could do that because it like I told you early on this is a this is a depressing topic, yeah. so I'm glad we could have a little bit of fun with it, at least at times.
2: Yeah, well, hopefully with you, Chad, we gained our second listener. So
0: it's <laughs> that, a running joke that we have one guy who just listens to the podcast over and over and over. Same,
4: same guy, just listens
0: to him. Yeah, it's, it's actually Jason. He sits in his office and just listens to it on a repeat.
2: He's got like four different phones. Surrounds. <laughs> so. Yeah. Awesome.
5: I'd like to point yeah. out that when you were talking about federal sharpshooters, Dan pointed that himself like it'd be a good job. But <laughs> well, we know it's not going to be you. As so. if he wasn't sitting next to the 20 you gauge sharpshooter right next sh- to him.
2: <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah.
4: You, you can't shoot deer with birdshot, Dan. <laughs>
0: no, I haven't, haven't even taught him how to shoot yet. <laughs> I mean, you can. You can, but I, I, I mean, you, you. could.
2: <laughs> oh, oh, man
0: All right. Well boys, this has been fun. Uh Chad, I I genuinely appreciate it. I know it's been a couple months in in the work kind of setting this up and especially during the rut. Some some a hole uh schedule this, but (laughs) I'm glad everybody else was able to join. So this has been a blast, super informative. I hope what what was
4: that? I was just saying, let's have let's have Chad back on. Let's yeah. have Chad back on at the end of the season. So we has recap the deer season and his uh, thoughts let's on it.
5: Let's have him that on on November fifteenth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah what, are you, what are you doing November fifteenth, yeah. Chad?
4: Yeah. Live <laughs> live on I location. Great, I have a great date, November
2: fifteenth. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, I'm a deer boss, so I'm working that day,
3: day.
0: So <laughs> uh, yeah, probably a chance you got to work, but. Yeah. no i appreciate it it's been fun informative hopefully all the listeners uh learned something i know i learned a lot again i, th- I thought i had a good understanding of it and I, I clearly didn't but yeah it's been a good time uh any final comments boys nope no yeah. just uh just thank you i learned a lot too so thank you cool all right well i'll uh, i'll link everything that kind of chad was talking about in the description of this podcast and uh other than that thanks for listening and always get outdoors and don't be terrible